Welcome to For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for sharing this space with me. It is my distinct pleasure, my honor really, to share with you this conversation I had with Dr. Tiffany Florville. I've had the pleasure to get to know Tiffany and her lovely family uh, during her fellowship at the American Academy here in Berlin. Tiffany's an accomplished scholar and a historian who focuses on the histories of post-1945 Europe, the African diaspora, social movements, black internationalism, as well as gender and sexuality. Her book, Mobilizing Black Germany, Afro-German Women and the Making of a Transnational Movement, focuses on black women in contemporary German history and explores the initiatives of activists who challenged racism in German society. This uh, account focuses not only on the racism that black Germans suffered from, but also the activism they mobilized to fight that very racism. Now, while in Berlin, she's been working on a book on Mayaim, who in the 1980s co-founded the Initiative Schwarze Menschen in Deutschland, or the Initiative of Black People in Germany. I uh, linked to ISD, as well as a lot of the other movements and works and people that Tiffany mentions in the show notes to this here episode. And you might want to consult those show notes, because there's a whole lot of substance to our conversation. There is, as they say, a lot of there there with Dr. Tiffany Florville. The good doctor and I explore the intersectional and international nature of her work. We also dive into the uphill climb to make black German studies matter. And of profound interest to me, I should add here, we discuss how and why Contrary to an increasingly popular belief that I'll have nothing to do with, Germany is not, I repeat, not some kind of a model for grappling with its history and atoning for its historical atrocities. Now, Tiffany was in Berlin this academic year. She'll be at Harvard next year before returning to the University of New Mexico. And I'm really grateful that I was able to meet her in Berlin, and I'm thrilled to be able to share her with you. So my friends, please join me in conversation with Dr. Tiffany Florville. Dr. Tiffany Florville, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. How do you describe what you do? I can describe what I do in a few words. I want to say first, before I describe what I do, I want to say thank you for inviting me, Daniel, to your podcast. Um, I am a professor of 20th century women's and gender history, European women's and gender history. And specifically, I focus on um, the Black diaspora in Germany, as well as Black diaspora in Europe more broadly. But my first book was on Black German mobilization in the 1980s, 90s, and 2000s, and thinking about different ideas of transnational mobilization, transnational networks, feminism, social movements more broadly. So I focus on minoritized, basically minoritized communities in the post-1945 period. 
So, Tiffany, I've had the pleasure to get to know you and your lovely family a bit during your short time in Berlin. And I ought to say, it took me no time at all to become a huge Florville fanboy. <laughs> you know, you're, you're kind, you're compassionate, and you're wicked clever. And, and I think you could have done anything with that brain of yours. So I have to ask, how did you get on this particular professional path? Yeah, I'm also a big fan of yours, Daniel. So the feeling is totally mutual. Yay! Tee -hee. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it all began with my German pen pal, quite frankly. I had a German pen pal in middle school, and we were writing each other, and we were good friends. We would send each other like mixtapes, <laughs> um, old school writing every song and everything on the on the on the cassette. Yes. Uh, and then we would send each other like birthday gifts or Christmas gifts. But then I visited her family um, for a summer. I spent a month with her family. My pen pal lived in a small town near Frankfurt. Um, and so I visited her family for a month and was completely like enamored with Germany and sort of, I guess, fell in love with the history and the culture. And then after that, I was like, oh, I've definitely got to go back. And so I applied for a scholarship to study abroad and I was a finalist. And then I was able to study abroad in for a whole year in Germany. So I lived in Frankfurt with a host family and I had a temporary host family in a small town called Hufheim um, near Frankfurt. And then I spent a month there doing sort of German crash course um, because I didn't have I didn't have really any German prior to um, living here for the year. I, I had taken Spanish in, in high school and I was in Florida, so Spanish seemed more practical than German. Yeah. And then I um, moved to Hamburg and lived with my permanent host family and had a great time, went to gymnasium, but I also had all these racist and racializing experiences. And I, so I think that also informed this path of mine in which I'm very much intrigued by the experiences of black Germans, Germany's black diaspora more broadly and how they had to deal with and continue to deal with racism, discrimination and different types of oppression. Uh, one example I can give you in terms of thinking also back to my pin pal was we visited the butcher. Um, and so I was like, you know, 16 when I went to Germany for the first time. And I was with her family when we were at the butchers and the butcher was like sharpening his knives and like smiling at me. Yeah. I was like, what the hell? Uh. Um, and so I basically asked my Pimmel's mom, like, what's going on? And he's like, oh, he's never seen a black person before. And so I think that was like very sort of, okay, wow. But I also, little did I know that that would be, actually be sort of like an impetus for my graduate work and as well as my, you know, PhD work. That sounds like a bona fide turning point in your life. Can you like picture this butcher's eyes as though it were yesterday? Yeah. I mean, his eyes were friendly, but it was also freaky because I'm like, uh, is he going to like try to carve me? Like, what is this? Oh. I'm like, uh, I just, I think we're just here to get steaks. Like, I don't want to become the steak. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> <laughs> so when you went to university for your undergraduate work, were you intent on studying something to do with German, something to do with history, something to do with German history, or was it more wide open than that? 
Yeah, I think at the time it was a bit more wide open than that. So I was able to clip out of um, intermediary and beginning German courses at my undergraduate automata. I had to take a class. I had to, excuse me, take a test where I wrote a, a series of answers to questions they'd given me in German. And that allowed me to sort of clip out of um, beginning, you know, 100, 200 level courses. And so I could immediately take more advanced literature courses, which I did. And I loved it. So initially, I thought I was going to do a lot of German literature. So I was all about like um, Anna Ziegas and Ingrid Cohen. And um, I read Gunther Kras and Bernhard Schlink and all of these, um, all of these guys in, in, in German. And so I was like, wow, German literature. I also took like independent studies with my one of my favorite German literature professors. And so I did a class in which I was focused on like East German um, writers. And so, but through all that coursework, so we did a lot of like Jewish German. I think we did a little bit of, a little bit of Turkish German, but not very much black German. We didn't really explore Asian German or Roma Sinti. The courses were great. And I thought, oh, I'm going to try to do German literature. And then I took some history classes and then I was like, whoa, this is so cool. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm fascinated and decided, how do I combine the two? Um, and so I think that was the, that basically led me to make a decision about, oh, I think I'm going to do Black German mobilization. Huh. So I guess bearing the twin canons of history and literature in mind, it, it kind of seems to me like your work is almost desperately complicated, in part because it's an unrelenting pursuit of nuance. Yeah. I mean, your work is, as I understand it, an exploration of complicated, robust, and intersectional histories. And you're exploring how race and ethnicity intersect, right? How they intersect with gender, class, religion, politics, sexuality. And I guess I want to try to get you to discuss as early on in our conversation as possible, the challenges of pursuing such an intersectional approach to historical work? Yeah, that's also a fabulous question. You're, you're, you're on fire, Daniel. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think for me, the challenges, and I sort of experienced this earlier on when I wanted to pursue this project, was that for many, for a while, people didn't think that this topic was historical enough. I mean, when I initially applied to graduate school, you know, over 20 years ago, wow, it's hard to imagine it's over 20 years. Sorry, I just processed that. <laughs> but, Whoa, oh my gosh. Yeah, when I applied over 20 years ago, I applied to a few places where they were like, are you sure this is history? Are you sure you don't want to do poli-sci or sociology? Right. Um, you're also doing the 1980s. That seems a bit too close. And it's like, I, I do want to do history. This is a historical project. I see the merits um, in pursuing this through the discipline of history, but also not only relying on histor historical methods to tell this narrative. So I think for me, I'd, I was always sort of positioned as not being a historian, even though I was like, I want to be trained as a historian. And it was really through the course of, you know, attending conferences, quite frankly, after I finished my, my, my dissertation, my PhD, where I started to feel like I had a place of belonging, but it wasn't really in, um, 
you know, German history per se, I felt there was much more acceptance and reception to my work in like African-American, African diaspora um, conferences, women's studies, women's history conferences, feminist conferences, and the like. So more sort of thematic conferences that dealt with some of the overarching themes that my work, you know, focused on. So for example, social movements, or um, thinking about um, internationalism. And so I think that was sort of the means through which I felt like, okay, this makes sense to a a group of people that aren't necessarily German historians, but can also help give me constructive feedback on how I can improve this. Um, And prior to that too, when I would, would attend like German Studies Association conferences. So the German Studies Association is a sort of um, a prominent organization in the US. They have annual conferences oftentimes only in the U.S., but this year, it's one of the first times they're having an international conference in um, in Montreal. But when I would attend these conferences as a graduate student, I would always get stodgy men, stodgy white men who would be like, why are you doing this? What are the numbers of black Germans? Yeah. Why do you think this is important? And, you know, so sort of th- some of these questions were certainly trying to undermine the work that I was doing. Um, and so I also had to develop, you know, answers for that. What are the numbers? I would be like, oh, the numbers of Black Germans was five, approximately 500,000, which was comparable to the number of Jews prior to the Second World War. Why do I think this is important? I think it tells us a lot about German identity. It also tells us about the myth of anti-racism in the post-45 period and a variety of other things. So it really forced me to try to come up with the answers to then validate why I was taking this particular academic route and why this this subject merited study. And I think it's through, you know, through that, but then also these other conferences, the sort of thematic conferences that I really was able to sort of acquire more um, methodologies and sort of build my um, methodological toolkit, so to speak, in which it was not only about sort of German intellectualism or German post-45 history, which of course is important to the narrative, but it was much more about sort of diaspora studies, thinking about Black internationalism, what that meant for a particular type of um, Black German activists, and thinking about what feminism, the, the variant of feminism and what that looked like in the German context. So I think all of that together really helped me, you know, build a project that really allowed me to tell a narrative and to share the complexity of the community, to share the complexity of the narratives. I love that response. There's so much there. And I know I'm going to at least try to dig into various facets of of what you offer there. And maybe I can start here. You're bringing diasporic studies in, you're bringing political science, you're bringing history, you're bringing perhaps some sociological and feminist studies methodologies. And it seems to me that there's a lot of opportunity there, but there's a lot of challenge there as well. And maybe I could get you to talk a little bit about the challenges and the opportunities and the intersection of challenges and opportunities in bringing together so many different methodologies to do your work. Yeah, I think the challenges are sort of figuring out what methodologies work for me. 
Um, and how do I use them to illuminate the stories that I want to illuminate without imposing um, particular characteristics or particular types of, of descriptions of Black Germans that are supposed to fit into a, a standard narrative of the diaspora or a standard of, um, narrative of African-American history per se. And so for me, it's the challenge is sort of figuring out which tools are useful and then also being really, really attentive to the specificities of Germany. I am a German historian. I was trained as a German historian. I'm aware of sort of the, the methodological and historiographical trends in um, German history, specifically in the post-1945 scholarship. And so trying to figure out where I fit um, and how I use those methodologies, like like you just described, like feminist studies. I also engage with affect studies and queer studies. So how do I use that in a way that does not, you know, um, impose impose a mischaracterization of what the Black German movement or Black Germans who they are and what they've done more broadly. So that's been some of the difficulty. I think some of the positive aspects of it is that I, for example, I'm using methodologies, I'm using tools that really help me tease out the complexity, which is so, so hard to do, but also these additional, you know, resources really help me illuminate a narrative that hadn't really been told in the way that I've told it. Um, when I came across sources about this movement, it was mostly done quite frankly, in literary circles. So German literature, um, German studies more broadly, no one had tackled it as a, as, um, a historical moment or um, a historical series of historical moments per se. And so it was very important for me to, to sort of ground it as a historical study, but to be very intentional about my, um, my position as an interdisciplinary and intersectional historian, but also my position as a person who's not Black German. I'm of Afro-Caribbean descent. I'm coming from a particular type of context, and I am not um, speaking for Black Germans with my work. I'm trying to illuminate their narratives based on their archival material and based on conversations with them, oral interviews with them, but I'm not, I, you know, I, my work is not meant to be representative of all Afro-Germans per se, or to speak for them. And so it's really a difficult balance to try to make sure that I'm doing that in a way that is a, that is considerate uh, and cognizant of my own positionality while also trying to convey particularly important historical, um, series of historical moments about um, Black Germans more broadly. I have to confess to you that I rarely think of like a title for a podcast episode in advance of recording it. But in thinking about you in the days and weeks leading up to this conversation, I kept on thinking like there's this working title called A Difficult Balance, yeah. right? And and that's something that I suppose will be a theme perhaps in, in our conversation. Um, and there's this other balancing act that you seem to be trying to do. And I think you do it splendidly so far as I can tell, because like in addition to these intersectional nuances, you're also grappling with international and transnational histories, which I suppose is par for the course in diasporic narratives. Like, as you know, I've been working in international schools for a long time. I think really seriously about how internationalism and transnationalism affects my work. 
And I guess I kind of wonder how your pursuit of international historical narratives impacts your thinking and your work. Yeah, I think that's a that's also a fabulous question. I think my own personal background deals with that. So both my parents are were immigrants to the U.S. My dad is from Haiti, and my mom is from Trinidad. So my my own personal background speaks to these these ideas of internationalism. Um, one parent from the Francophone Caribbean, and one parent from the Anglophone Caribbean, and so my upbringing in South Florida was very, very interesting in terms of thinking about how Haitians were perceived in the media in, in, in Florida, my interactions with other African-Americans, um, having different sort of cultural sensibilities and cultural practices that my friends didn't have. So that sense of internationalism, that sense of migration, that sense of like the contours of the diaspora was something I personally felt that's one of the one of the one of the many reasons too that I gravitated to a topic like this because it really shows us the multiple experiences of the diaspora that there's not one particular way or path or process of the diaspora and I think that allows us to see how these different ideas of the diaspora different um, moments of the diaspora shape identity and so for me it's been really really important to to center that. And as you mentioned, the diaspora is inherently transnational. Many of the individuals, many of the historical actors that I focus on were not just um, were German, but then also were either sort of Nigerian, Ghanaian, African-American, from Spain, from Cuba. It depends. So their their backgrounds, their backgrounds were also um, extremely transnational. They also some in many in some cases, excuse me, were able to continue to maintain those connections to family members in Nigeria or Ghana or Kenya or wherever the case may be. I know, although some were not, but I think those inherent transnational um, connections and sensibilities are very much a part of the movement that I study and also were very much a part of my life growing up. And so I think, much like you said, it's hard to, to do that type of work because, for example, I'm now a visiting professor at the Free University in the Global and Intellectual History Program. And I'm considered a scholar of like global history. And I'm, I think it's funny because I never see my work as being uh, about global history per se. I mostly see it about sort of tracing how black Germans forge different connections ac- across the borders um, and also within the borders. So that internationalism doesn't mean you have to necessarily travel to Brussels, you can also engage with internationalism with your themes, with your your friends who are also international, um, who also have an international background. So I think for me, it was was so obvious that um, they were internationalists because the sources were telling me this, and I was tracing the different movements and their mobility across across Europe, but also across Latin America, um, across the Pacific, and also across the Caribbean. So it was so apparent in the sources that I looked for. It's also apparent in some of the conversations that I had with Black Germans. And it all sort of shaped my ideas about, okay, this is much more of a transnational movement than others had previously characterized it to be. Huh. You know, Tiffany, in thinking about the relationship between your biography and the work that you do. I kind of stumbled on what I might want to call like another like intersectionality question, but it comes from a a very different place. 
So without placing on your shoulders, like the burden of explaining the complicated relationship between academic history, which foolishly or otherwise should probably strive for neutrality, I don't know, on some level at least, and activism, or, or what I would prefer to call the project of liberation, can I get you to explore the intersection of scholarship and activism in your work? Yeah, uh, the sort of intersection of scholarship and activism. I think that's one of the core uh, themes in the book. Okay, so I should sort of preface that my first book was called Mobilizing Black Germany, um, Afro-German Women in the Making of Transnational Movement, which came out in 2020. And in that book, and in the articles leading up to that book, I focus on um, Black German activists and their creation of knowledge um, and their creation of new ideas, which is scholarship that's not necessarily within the confines of the ivory tower. Um, and so I think that's what's so interesting about them is that they're creating new types of knowledge. They're creating new epistemologies. They're doing all of this, they're producing all of this work that's not only in um, universities. It's through music, like hip hop. It's through performative pieces. It's through um, um, spoken word poetry. It's through a variety of vernacular forms that still constitutes knowledge. And so I see them as much more than um, activists. I basically call them in my book, I basically call the Black Germans quotidian intellectuals, hmm. basically everyday intellectuals yeah. who intellectualize the everyday and brought the everyday to the forefront in their works. And so for me, that's the movement. The movement is not only about advocating um, for you know tolerance um, to, to challenge discriminatory practices, but it was also about providing knowledge about colonial, Germany's colonial past, the legacy of the Namibian genocide, thinking about um, the similarities between Jewish victims as well as um, Black German victims of the Holocaust. So all of this is scholarship that's not necessarily considered scholarship or not necessarily even considered intellectualism in the sort of more traditional um, vein. So this is why it was really important for me to, to show in the book that like, look, this is all intellectual. Um, this is this is work that's not only um, in a book per se, but it's in a, a zine, a newspaper. It's in a, you know, it's in a brochure. All of this is disseminating knowledge in ways that help to try to incite a degree of change, cultural, political change on the German landscape. Whether they're successful or not is different. It's not, and I'm not judging them by success or failure per se, but I do think that they've made a mark by sort of showing how you can activists are intellectuals and they're creating scholarship that tries to make a difference, that tries to change and shape um, some of those mainstream discussions, especially in the 1980s in Germany, where there's limited discussions about racism or race or even notions of racialization processes of, you know, exclusion and how, how difference was demarcated. I think that through the movement more broadly, they're showing that um, there's a myth of anti-racism in the post-45 context in Germany, that Germany actually is still struggling with racism and still struggling with anti-Semitism, and that we actually need to talk about these two um, forms of um, demarcating difference in, in similar ways together. 
And so I think that's through, you know, the movement that they do that. Um, and then many of them were not necessarily students. Some of them were, you know, I call them lay historians, lay scholars who were really very much in, invested in excavating Black histories in the German context, writing about the, 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 the diversity of the diaspora in the German context and beyond. And that's what helped to lay some of the sort of the foundation of, of the movement in many ways. Now, I'm hoping I can get you to demarcate a difference or to blur the line a little bit. And this might be a bit of an on-the-nose question, so you can smack it down if you have to, but (laughs) there's at least this notion of academia and academic history, and there's this notion that it should be somehow removed from activism. And then there's this notion of activism what I momentarily called this project of liberation. To what degree and in what ways do you see your academic work as activist work? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't see myself like grassroots activists, like the individuals that I've studied and continue to study. Um, But I see my activism taking place a lot in the classroom. So I see my pedagogy and my classes and my um, mentorship with students as a form of activism that helps them uh, acquire the critical skills, critical thinking skills, critical reading skills, getting them to challenge different notions and power structures through their readings and getting them to see that the U.S. is not the only entity that has a race problem or is, um, is a racist space. And so getting them to see how race functions in the Europe, in the European continent has been a really, really a, a standard in my classes and all of my classes. And I think that's where I see um, my activism, if I were to say I'm an activist. And more broadly, I think of the, I've had this label, which I'm, I don't know, I'm a little uneasy with. Um, that people are like, you're a public intellectual because like you do all these, you write blogs and you do podcasts and interviews and you tweet a lot and you're like a public intellectual. And I'm like, I'm not, a, I don't see myself as a public intellectual, which would also explain this, you know, this line of she's an activist and she's an intellectual. I mostly see myself as trying to like get more people to be aware of the presence of Black Germans in the German context, but then also using whatever platforms I have to like elevate those individuals who are also doing this work. Um, so I don't, yeah, I don't know if I see myself as like a, a grassroots activist in the traditional, you know, Angela Davis sense. Certainly I'm also not a Marxist, so I think that would, <laughs> that would, that would, that would not, we're not, we're not simpatico in that way. But I do see myself as like trying to make a difference through my, through my classes, through my students. And um, I think that's important work too. I enjoy teaching and so I enjoy interacting with my students and, getting to see the light bulbs go, you know, go on and to see their engagement with the source material, primary sources, secondary sources, to see how they interact with authors or bring to the classroom. And so I think that's my way of trying to affect a degree of change um, as an activist. And then I see a second thing, which I'm, I'm giving you a, a good spiel here, um, <laughs> that the second thing is that I think that my scholarship I don't see it as a form of activism, but I do see it as um, making a scholarly intervention. 
um, that is supposed to change how we see German history more broadly, what gets included as um, German history, what is excluded as German history. And so I see it as an intervention to sort of really push for a more inclusive and a more attentive approach to what German history can be. Nice. I love everything about that response. And if time permits, maybe we can come back to this idea of you as a public intellectual, and certainly we'll come back to the myriad ways in which you've been corrupting the youth. Um, <laughs> um, yes. But, yes. but before we do that, um, I guess we, we've established here that this is deeply complicated, nuanced, intersectional work. It seeks to document and to liberate. Florville, you got a lot of tabs open on your browser, literally and metaphorically. You're spinning a lot of plates, as they say. And with that established, I have for you what might well be a mundane question. But with apologies, it's a question about which I'm desperately curious. What motivates you to pursue this particular path? of academic research? Yeah, that's also a good question. So I, yeah, I am the first generation um, in my family to, to go to college, go to university, uh, to acquire a master's degree and a PhD. So I think my mom is a good motivator. I wanna certainly make her proud um, and that all of her sacrifices were not in vain. Uh, especially sort of coming to the U.S. and working and, you know, raising both my sister and uh, myself. So I think she's one of my, you know, motivations and inspirations, so to speak. And then I also am quite frankly motivated by the the individuals I study in Germany. Women like uh, Rhea Cheatham or Ricky Reiser or Katarina Lentoya, who I met while I was doing dissertation research here, who shared with with me so many of their stories about the work that they did. Um, and then I saw the work that they did in the sources. And so they're really quite inspiring in terms of how they were able to sort of mobilize, you know, black Germans, not all black Germans were involved in the movement, not everybody was involved, but they organized a variety of events um, in Munich and Berlin and Frankfurt and Bremen, everywhere, quite frankly. And this is certainly impressive given that it was not a moment in which social media was um, a, a connective mode, so to speak. Yeah. They were doing this with like making flyers at like a local Kinko, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. copies of their brochures, um, calling people taking out ads in on the radio and in television and as well as in newspapers um there and then i go back to the point of calling people i dread talking on the phone so like <laughs> if i have to text someone or if i can whatsapp someone i'm like much more secure so the fact that they actually are like willingly calling people to ask them to join and come out and hang out and attend these attend these meetings and events is really really impressive to me because now in, in many ways like 
you know, I, I tweet a line and I'm like, okay, that's like my social engagement. You know, I've tweeted something. I don't have to call anybody. I can maybe text, but that's it. Um, and I think that's, that's so remarkable to me that they did all this stuff. Um, and another third thing, a uh, third sort of, I guess, group of individuals or, you know, people who've really been, you know, inspirational to me, I think is also sort of black feminists. So black German women were also feminists, but I'm also thinking about feminists like Audre Lorde, who actually came to Berlin and um, met with black German women. I'm thinking about women like Claudia Jones, who was a Trinidadian um, communist who was deported from the U.S. and um, lived in the U.K. until her death. I'm thinking about women like Shirley Graham Du Bois, who was married to, certainly married to W.E. Du Bois, and pushed for a variety of uh, changes on an international landscape in terms of anti-colonialism, anti-fascism, and the like. So there's a sort of cadre of Black feminists who I really do look up to and think that, wow, they've certainly made a difference. Um, and um, And I hope in a small way that my work either in the classroom or in, you know, on paper can also make a small difference. It must. It has to. And I hope that you feel the profound difference it makes in your lifetime. I'm thinking about Claudia Jones and Audre Lorde and Shirley Graham Du Bois. And part of their project is to give Black Germans a voice, give Black German women a voice to make them visible, to stop them from being silenced, to make sure that they're not erased. And I see you as doing the same thing. It seems to me that your work has a lot to do with giving people a voice. And for this reason, I wonder if there's resistance to your work. Like, do you have to really fight to establish the importance of what you do? Yeah. I mean, I think as a graduate student, I did. Um, And certainly as a junior professor prior to obtaining tenure, I certainly felt like I had to sort of stake a claim of why these this research topic was important. Um, and then I think it helps that I'm stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it helps that like people were not really, um, so there's certain, certainly a few people within the black German community who were like, Oh, what's this American going to do? Why is she interested in this history? What is she going to write? Um, some of them were not too keen on me doing so. And there's still a few who are out there who are, are definitely not keen on me writing a, attempting to write a biography on my aim, which is my next project. Um, and so I think because I'm stubborn, <laughs> that I'm like, I'm just going to do it because it needs to be written. It needs to be done. Um, and so, I, I mean, I see myself you know, excavating these histories that have been ignored or elided and really trying to just shine a light on these experiences, these individuals and their, and their, their tasks, what they've, what they accomplished. Um, so I, I, I'm honored that you think I'm sort of in the same vein in terms of, um, giving a voice to black Germans. I don't want to give them a voice. I'm using their voices to tell the narrative. So I'm using their materials to tell the narrative in which they're, in which I interpret their sources and offer my own sort of, um, you know, ideas about what I think they've done and what they, what I've accomplished, what they've accomplished, excuse me. And so it was useful for me to hear from several individuals in the movement who I did also send some copies of my book to, because, you know, I've, 
feel um, completely honored that they shared their time with me when I was conducting dissertation research and afterwards shared their time with me, shared materials with me and treated me, you know, so, so graciously that I, I sent copies of my book during the pandemic to them. And so they sadly received the book late, but several of them were like, wow, you did a good job. We did a lot. I was like, yeah, you guys did do a lot. Um, and so several several members who I talk about in the book said I did a good job with the book. Mm-hmm. And so that was the biggest compliment, I think, for me. Um, I had, my, the book has been reviewed, my book has been reviewed in prominent journals in the US, also journals here in Germany. And, uh, and for the most part, it's been positively reviewed. Uh, but to hear from actual members of the movement was certainly the largest compliment and it made me feel good and i actually so the german translation of my book just came out uh and i one of the the one of the major reasons i wanted to get have the book published is that there's a generation of black german women who are involved in the in the movement who english they can't read english as well um and so reading my book for some of them is hard and one of them in particular um, maria cheatham who actually lived with for a bit while i was doing dissertation research um, we were really, really, we spent a lot of time together. I was really eager for her to read the book in, in German. And so she, you know, she got a copy of it and she read it and she was like, wow, we, wow, you did, a, you did a lot of great work here. Um, and she's pretty frank. So she would tell me if this sucked, <laughs> um, like she would be like, this is a hot mess. What are you doing? So. Yeah. I was really, you know, it was like the, it was like a feather in my cap. Um, and we sat there and talked a little bit and she looked at the bibliography and she's like, there's so much stuff you, you accumulated and so many things that you sort of nodded and recognized, excuse me. Um, and so I was like, yeah, that was the, that was the point. And I said, and certainly not everything got into both versions. Um, but it's been important for me to just sort of excavate these narratives and try to shed light on why this also constitutes a part of um, German history. Yeah. You have so much to be proud of. I'm so excited for you. I'm so glad we're having this conversation. In part because you, you, you speak with so much passion about your work, but it's not just passion. It's like real joy. I legit feel that. And I know it's not all peaches and puppies, but it really seems like you're having fun. And if I'm at least a little bit right about that, can you talk to me about the fun part of your work? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do have some haters. Um, I do get some hate mail. Um, not a lot of hate mail, but I did get some hate mail before I, I came to Berlin in January. Um, Sorry. Yeah, which sucked. Um, but also, many of my friends here were like, "Ignore." Yeah. Um, we, you know, you're doing great work, which was which was great. I didn't, you know, I didn't send, I didn't sort of share the news with my friends to sort of have them, you know, build me up. But it was like great that they're like, uh, "Ignore this. Um, they haven't read your work." Um, so, for the most part, though, I think. Studying this history tells me a lot about myself in ways. Um, it forces me to be more introspective. It's fun to like, I was a, like a detective when I was doing dissertation research because 
many of these materials that I found weren't in your traditional archives. So they weren't at the Bundesarchiv um, or the Staatsarchiv here in Berlin. They were in a basement <laughs> or they were in um, a living room or they were in a suitcase or they were in boxes that were slightly molded. Um, they were in a cultural center. Uh, and so I think for me, it was fun to find these sources. And while finding these sources, it was fun to forge connections with these individuals. Um, so I talked about forging connections in the book, um, my Mobilizing Black Germany book, that Black Germans forged connections, they forged a diaspora, they cohered. And in many ways, I was also forging connections with, um, with uh, women I spoke to. And those connections were really, really um, important and really showed me a lot about myself. Um, and then I just like sources. So, I mean, I think for me, the dissertation research and afterwards has shown me that the archives are everywhere. They're not only in the Staatsarchiv. They're not only in um, at the FU. They're actually in living rooms or cafes. Um, and that made me realize that sources are very much in the everyday in ways we hadn't I hadn't recognized previously. Um, so I talk about like, oh, yes, they were like everyday intellectuals, quotidian intellectuals. But in many ways, the archive was also um, in the everyday. It's not necessarily housed in an ivory tower. It's housed in a personal space. Um, and in, in some ways, they do this because they don't trust those state archives. Um, and rightfully so in terms of um, previous legacies of racism and just absolute um, ridiculousness. So in many ways, finding the sources is fun. Talking to people has, is also fun. And then finding new things that I hadn't thought I would come across, which was basically my entire dissertation experience, dissertation research experience here in Berlin, which was like, I was here from 2011 to 2012. And I was like, wow, I didn't even imagine I would see this stuff. Whoa. Yeah. I was like, you know, losing my mind in many ways. <laughs> my gosh. Um, yes. Why isn't this in the archive? I was immediately, that was my first thought. Why isn't this in the archive? And then I was like, slow your roll, little lady. Yeah. This isn't in the archive for a reason. Yeah. Um, and so that's been fun. And then I think for me too, uh, I guess a second or third, however many points this is so far, because <laughs> well, I'm, I'm the lab or the, 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 the concept side, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's just really wonderful when people email me and say they've read my work and that they liked it and it's and it it changed their ideas about Germany. Um, and so I've received many of those emails. People have also come to events and said, hey, could you sign my book? I mean, that's been a really big thing for here in Germany. People have been like, sign my book. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this sounds like I'm a star or something. Uh, um, you are. I, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't see myself as such, but it's also like, wow, people read it, you know, they have it in their hand, they actually bought it. Um, so it's really in the world in ways that I always thought it wouldn't be, you know, I thought maybe three people would read the book, <laughs> really more than three people have read the book, but like seeing their responses, the, the, the emails, the comments, it's been really positive. So overwhelmingly, it's been a positive experience. Uh, and I think that motivates me. 
uh, I think that helps me too. That's like, wow, people are, people like this and they want to know more. And I want to know more, you know, just because I wrote a book doesn't mean I know everything about the movement. There's still things I completely don't know. Um, so I see, see this work as, you know, I'm growing with this work as well. My ideas are evolving. I'm, you know, taking, um, going in new directions and all of that's exciting for me. Um, and, and, you know, the moment that it becomes boring, um, is maybe, uh, the moment where I need to step back and not do it anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you still think it's exciting and I'm really heartened to hear that you're having fun. And I'm here to tell you that you are indeed a legit shining star. <laughs> Take it from me. I know that it's true. <laughs> and I think it would be really fun to research what I want to call living history. But I also know that it poses its own set of challenges. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges of doing historical research on the, the recent past, right? The 80s, the 90s, maybe even a little bit of the early aughts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem, too, is that many, um, many of the individuals that I write about in the book are still alive. Yeah. Um, and not everyone was willing to talk to me. So I did write, for example, there was a magazine that there were two organizations that I write about in the book, ESD, Initiative of Schatz of Deutsche, Initiative of Black Germans, and um, Adefter, Afro-German Women, Afro Deutsche Frauen. And both of these organizations were created in the mid-1980s. And I wrote, and Adefra created a journal called Afriketa, and ISD also created a journal called Afrolook. But I was writing the editors of um, Afriketa when I was doing different dissertation research. And I wrote to, I received their email addresses. And I was like, oh, I, I can find out more information about the journal, about the intricacies. And I wrote them and they never wrote back. Um, I also wrote some other individuals that never wrote back. I wasn't able to meet with everyone. Um, There's also a reluctance to meet with me. Um, rightfully so, because I think they've had interactions with other researchers who've come and gone and never came back. And so there's a there's a interesting balance in terms of being able to negotiate and really foster relationships that are not um, exploitative, that are not really also um, just uh, going one way. Um, and so I'm I think the relationships I forge with individuals here. They've certainly done so much for me, but I also try to do as much as I can for them. I also think that you also struggle with the memory in the movement um, with some that like some have a different uh, idea of how the movement was that may counter the 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 narrative that I've portrayed. Um, but this is why I think it's also extremely important for other people to be writing on this topic too. I don't want to be the only one writing about this topic so that we have different methodological approaches, different sort of ways to see the movement. So I think it's very important that I'm not the only one doing this, but you do have difficulties with, um, people are still living and how they see how you're producing their history. Um, and if they, if they take umbrage to your characterization of their their movement, their self, their sense of self, and how that oftentimes is wrapped up with value and worth. And so I think that is difficult. Um, I did do some oral interviews, but largely um, I also relied on published oral interviews. Um, I think I'll have to rely on more oral interviews for my new project. 
um, which I started, I've started doing those oral interviews here in Berlin. I just think it's, uh, it's, it's easier, I guess, in many ways to do like, um, you know, the 19th or 18th century because your individuals are dead and they can't email you and say, why didn't you include this? Um, why didn't you do this? I mean, no one has said that to me per se, but, when I was writing an article um, earlier on, uh, one of the one of the individuals I wrote upon was like, "Oh, my title is this." And I was like, "Yeah, your title is this now, but your title was not that back then." And so, how do you balance the input that you receive from them? I like it, I take it, but I also have to be cognizant of okay, I can't have them impose what the project should be either. Um, and so that's that's always going to be a balance. I think it's really going to be a tricky balance, quite frankly, with this new project that I'm doing dealing with. Um, as I mentioned, I'm writing a biography on Maya Eam, extremely prominent Black German activist, intellectual, quite frankly, a Renaissance woman. And, you know, it's her life story was not easy. Um, and so I'm going to have to really, I'm, I really am going to struggle with really giving her narrative justice, being ethical, and also being attentive to what doesn't necessarily need to be um, described in the book and how some stuff can sort of stay, stay where it is, sort of, you know, in the margins, so to speak. So, and interviewing friends who may not want to be interviewed. Um, more recently, a, a colleague of mine reached out to a potential interview partner who has no desire to be interviewed for this project. Um, and so I'll have to deal with a lot of people saying no. Um, I've also had to deal with a lot of people already saying, as a black woman from the US, why do you think you should be writing on like one of the most important black German um, figures? Mm. And my my answer to that is that, yeah, she, she warrants a biography. There's nothing really written about her that gives us a larger breakdown of her legacy and lineage. Um, and so I think as a Black scholar from the U.S., I have a different perspective to bring that can illuminate that story. But I won't, I'm, I'm certain I won't be the only one. I'm certain other people will step up and write about her. Um, and then also maybe, you know, change the ideas, change my own ideas about her. So I think juggling oral interviews, juggling with people who are still alive, juggling with this idea, it's always difficult. And a last point about this is that I had to give a talk here at the American Academy, um, which is where um, my fellowship was this this semester. And I asked for a friend of mine to introduce me, Patrice Petrus, who was very, very close with her. And he was like, you know, one of the questions was like, oh, why do you think you can do this? Um, and I, you know, responded and his response was like, I think you can do this too. Um, and so I was, yeah. I was comforted, um, cause he's still alive. He's also a historian. Um, he has written a lot about migration and asylum in Germany, um, and in Europe more broadly. And he was friends with mine, he was close friends with mine. So that felt like a, a, a compliment and a, a, a sign of like, okay, I, I, I'm doing this and there's some, some, um, there's an endorsement of me doing it, so to speak. Yeah. Florville, you gave me goosebumps. Oh, mm-hmm. um, I'm really heartened to learn that you got the nod of approval. I know you're going to get many more nods of approval. And in my effort to kind of get your approval, um, I did a, a little bit 
of uh, research and thinking and reading uh, about you. I wanted to do more than just sit across from like a beer bar table. I wanted to like come to you uh, with some more clear thoughts about your your work and your reading than I picked up when we're hanging out and drinking beer. <laughs> and there was this essay that you published in 2019 um, called Diversity, Decolonization, and the German Curriculum. And the essay begins with this question that I hope I could get you to explore in this forum. So why does Black German studies matter now? The question's an interesting one, but it should actually be framed differently. Why has Black German studies not seemingly mattered before? And my question is, why has Black German studies not seemingly mattered before, Tiffany? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. It's yours. I'm just telling you your own question. <laughs> I know. It's like, oh, you're giving it back to me. Boom, boom. Uh, um, yeah, I think. Okay, so I should say that Black German history has mattered certainly to Black Germans who've been, you know, writing and uh, producing work about it for, for decades. Um, but I think it didn't matter, and still to a certain extent in the German context, it doesn't matter in the mainstream. I mean, there was a moment after the George Floyd protests in which there were over 29 protests, over 30 protests, quite frankly, in Germany in the summer of 2020, um, in which I thought, wow, this is great. There are sort of Black German journalists who were um, consulted and who appeared on like for interviews. And I said, wow, this is really a positive development. Um, in which those protests were not only, you know, expressing solidarity with George Floyd um, and Black Lives Matter, but also stressing the different the, the difficulties in Germany. So talking about, you know, police brutality in Germany, also talking about the local national context, which I thought, wow, this is amazing. This will probably push German history into, you know, away from the margins and to the center. And I think it did for a short time. However, there's still very few courses across um, German universities that engage with German, Black German history. Um, there's nothing that really talks about um, German colonialism in in a in a very productive way. I mean, certainly there's scholars like um, Jürgen Zimmerer and um, others, but there's still a limited engagement with uh, um, Black German history on the continent. It's basically scholars. All over the place, but not necessarily only in, in the German context who are pushing for it to have more um, significance. And so I think in the German context, it still doesn't have the significance that I think it, it should. Um, in the American context, I think it's, it's, I think it's readily accepted, um, not without some pushback from you know, some, some scholars, but for the most part, Black German studies as a field is also established. In the German context, there's also no Black German um, centers. Um, I know that there's efforts right now to create a Black European center at the Humboldt Universität, like Fatima El Taib and um, Patrice Patrus, and bringing together a wide variety of individuals who are not only scholars but activists, which I think is fabulous and is very, very, very necessary. But there's still no Black German centers, and there's actually not like a Black German department. It's still not on the curricula. Um, and so there are a few universities that teach it, like I had to give a talk in Münster in February, there was a German, Black German literature, literature seminar. I had to give a talk last week at Göttingen. There was a class on, I think, Black Germany, 
which I also thought was was great. But these are two universities out of so many in the German context. I think it's striking that you know Göttingen, one of the oldest universities in Germany, yeah. has a course like this. So I think that's great. But it still doesn't speak to the large slots of people who still are like, I didn't know this existed until I read your book. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. So I think it's still, um, it doesn't matter to some. And it is my hope. I mean, people are like, you're doing all these events. And I'm, yeah, I am. I'm tired, but I am doing them. (laughs) Darn it. They need to know that Black German history is German history. Yeah. And they need to know it has existed. And that Black German history isn't African-American history. It's German, Black German history stands on its own. Um, And so that's basically why I keep doing these events, too, because I'm pushing for more recognition more of an engagement with the historical um with the histories the marginalized histories that actually help to constitute what germanness is in german identity so i do the events in an effort to try to you know provide more awareness about the legacies of black germans and so i think for me it's always mattered for others it's always mattered but really speaking to sort of a white German populace in particular who doesn't think that this this history matters. Um, this is why I'm sort of doing these events to get them to realize that it matters. And then my final point is I think there are also not very many Black German um, professors in the German context. Part of that is much of that, not even part of that. Why am I going to, you know, lie about that? Yeah, yeah. All of it yep. <laughs> is, yep. is, uh, is about sort of institutional and structural racism. And, you know, thinking about gymnasium and thinking about who's tracked into gymnasium, who's tracked into Hauptschule or Realschule, um, who's excluded from that based on, you know, teachers who think, oh, this student isn't capable. And quite frankly, they're very capable. So there are very, very few um, Black German professors. And I can count on my hands who they are. And that also makes it difficult for, um, you know, students to pursue that here. Some of the Black professors, Black German professors who are who were here have left. A friend of mine um, left uh, Rebecca Bruchmann, she's Black German, focuses on U.S. history. She left Germany to, and is now teaching in the U.S. Fatima El Taib, who is also a Black German, was teaching at the University of California, San Diego for many years, is now at Yale. Um, I know another graduate student who is uh, leaving and going to study at York University because the work that she wants to do isn't necessarily, uh, there's no possibility for her to pursue that further here in Germany. So I think there's something about um, losing this caliber of people who are amazing and who can teach the next generation, but are barred from doing so due to um, structural institutional issues. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that some of these structural institutional issues provide serious obstacles. And there's like this other obstacle that I hope I can get you to talk about, and that's this historical narrative that in November of 1989, like everything changed, you know, most of it for the better, and the rest is just nostalgia or nostalgia, as we say. <laughs> There are a whole lot of underexplored asterisks to that narrative, right? Yep. Can I just ask you, if only briefly, to offer a little insight into what the fall of the wall meant for Afro-Germans? Yeah, that's a lovely, lovely question, which I talk a little bit about in the book. 
for me and also based on the materials that I've looked at from, from Black Germans, it was a very difficult time. It was a time of heightened racism, heightened anti-Semitism, and under the guise and much of the discourse at that time was like, oh, this is all xenophobia. Germans are xenophobic when actually it was a racism and anti-Semitism. It wasn't sort of a fear of foreigners per se. It was also a fear of like, you know, foreigners who were non-white, um, thinking about Vietnamese um, asylum seekers or um, thinking about uh, other um, workers, especially when we think about Hohen, um, think about Rostock and other cities and where we had all these racial, violent racial attacks. So a lot of the post-Venda period is a reckoning with whiteness. Um, I think it's a reckoning with um, the, the cost of trying to maintain German whiteness and how that becomes deadly for many. Yeah. Um, when you think about, um, you know, a variety of cities, not only in the former East, but also in West Germany. And so it's really remarked upon um, by Black Germans that it's a, it's a palpable difference. The, dis, the, the discussion of we are one people, no, was not, you know, Cole's push, Helmut Cole's push for saying, you know, well, we are one people, we're Einfolk. It is not true. Um, I think it was Einfolk for, for white Germans, but not for marginalized or minoritized communities, um, not for minoritized communities in Germany who were not, you know, non-white German communities who were experiencing heightened um, violence, and especially on the, on the Bahn or the U-Bahn or the S-Bahn. And we're also the uptick in racial violence against uh, asylum seekers and migrant workers who were, you know, thinking about a variety of individuals who were killed or beaten by um, neo-Nazis. So it was a very difficult time um, in terms of thinking about notions of identity and belonging. But I think it's a time that really shows you the persistence of different ideas of ethno-nationalism. The presumption was like, oops, it comes up in the 80s again after the wall falls. And it's and I think what's so interesting about the Black German movement that I study is that they're like, nope, it predates this. Yeah. It's heightened. There's an uptick, there's an upsurge, but there's actually a, uh, a maintenance of it after the Second World War. And so they write about it. They also created, um, there was a organization called the Black Unity Committee that was formed with a variety of um, African diasporic migrant groups. And then they would document the instances of racial violence that occurred um, so that there was a some some documentary evidence about the racial violence and the and that um, the impact that it had on um, marginalized and minoritized communities in Germany. And so I think the post-Venda period was very very difficult. And they wrote about it and they spoke about it and they tried to promote awareness about it. And I think. Some of the dynamics that we saw and have seen in the past in the what in the post-Venda period, we're seeing in different ways uh, again here in Germany. I think about like 2015 when we had a large, large um, groups of Syrian migrants and some of the uptick in violence, the burning of houses, there's also burning of places here in Berlin. Um, the uptick in anti-Semitism that's, you know, been on the rise since 2013. So all of this is, you know, showing you the maintenance, of, the maintenance of whiteness. When you see that AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, Alternative for Germany, has garnered 18% of support 
all of this is leading to a particular type of notion of whiteness that is still um, reign supreme. It's an unspoken whiteness for some, but it's also a very sort of normalized whiteness. This is why, you know, those sort of violent acts against non-white individuals, because they don't, the, the presumption is for, from neo-Nazis is they don't belong, they're not a part of us. And so there's an, un, there's certainly in some ways it's unspoken, in other ways it's very blatantly spoken. And we see that playing out today. So I think this is another lesson that we can learn in terms of thinking about black German movement of the 1980s, 90s, and aughts is that they were dealing with a similar terrain of heightened ethno-nationalism and presumptions of, um, you know, who belongs, who should be included, who should be excluded, also dealing a, a difference. I mean, in the 188, in the, excuse me, in the 1980s, there's a much more um, lax asylum law here in Germany. That law has changed. It changed in 92, 93. And so it's a Germany's approach, much in line with larger European Union, is a more, more draconian approach um, and really something to trying to harden the borders to not allow other individuals in. And as we've as, um, evinced by the latest um, drowning of individuals in the in, near Greece, that this is an ongoing issue. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I was literally just reading about that before we got on the horn here. It kind of shook me, I have to confess. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's terrible. And I think, yeah, I think these efforts to sort of create the EU, you know, which was also a similar process uh, in the 90s, the Maastricht Treaty, um, 92, 93, it's all of an effort to really restrict who can have access to to Europeanists who can have access to citizenship, to ability to work, and they're fleeing from conditions that were, you know, were in many ways exacerbated due to European and American intervention in regions. So there is something to be said about um, why individuals are fleeing and coming, and the, the sheer numbers of lives lost in the Mediterranean is just repeated examples of it abound, and it's still be, it's still terrible it's like horrible that it keeps happening and no one you know the response is like okay whatever yeah yeah it's it's terrible it's it's staggering indeed you know another thing that kind of like staggers me a little bit is i don't know how to frame this up but it just it just seems to me that there are these various forces like domestic and international that have made Germans come to see themselves as models of grappling with and atoning for their history. And I just don't see it this way. And I don't imagine that you do either. Can you talk a little bit about how your work seeks to reshape uh, how we see the so-called German model of atonement? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Sorry, I almost started to laugh. I was like, oh. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate your dark sense of humor, but it's it's more than asinine. It's so misguided. It's terribly frustrating. I know you think about this, and maybe you can just share some of those thoughts. Yeah. So I I should share a a, a, a funny anecdote that. Um, the fellows here, um, so I was a fellow at the American Academy from January to the end of May. One of our last events, um, the fellows were asked to meet with the trustees of the American Academy. Um, and so we had like a fancy schmancy dinner and we sat with, 
trustees. I sat next to one of the trustees um, and he said, oh, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't do my studying. I don't, you know, I don't know who you are. And I said, it's okay. Uh, I'm Tiffany and I work on, you know, Black German history. And I'm here doing, you know, doing research on to write a biography on um, my, and then I, and then he's, he said, and then he said, oh yeah, I had, you know, um, Clint Smith write a piece in the Atlantic. And I was like, oh, and I was like, I'm sorry, I didn't do my, I basically gave him the same line back. I was like, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't do my research on the trustees. And he said, yeah, I'm Jeffrey Goldberg. I'm the editor of The Atlantic. And oh I was my. like, oh my gosh, oops, I didn't do my research. But then he shared about the Clint Smith piece in The Atlantic, how he commissioned him to do it. And I said to him, I said, I like the writing, but I didn't agree with everything in it. And he's like, I'm sure you have some critiques. And I was like, yes, I do. But I didn't share with him, you know, all of the critiques because, you know, our next course was coming. (laughs) (laughs) It was not enough time. But I was, yeah, I think that piece, um, and I'm speaking about the Atlantic piece that came out in the fall, really talking about Germany as a model for memory um, and how it's grappled with the past, especially um, the, the Holocaust. I think... It's bollocks. <laughs> yeah, it's just bollocks. For anything. Um, and the fact that Germany, quite frankly, the fact that Germany, it's taken Germany so long to really have monuments and recognize uh, the Holocaust took some time. It was not immediate after post-1945. The first German film about the Holocaust appeared in 1979. Um, and then there wasn't, you know, there was no Jewish museum in 1980. Um, there was no um, site for the murdered Jews near um, Pondenbotur. None of that existed. And so there was a lot of grassroots activists who pushed for this change. Um, but that was slow. Um, and that still was slow. And so I think this is why I think Germany's not a model. Of course, in many ways, it's, you know, it's relationship with Israel and paying reparations to Israel. That's one type of recompense, but it's not the only type of recompense that I think um, Germany has um, has to deal with. And so I think it's not the model that it sees itself as. Yeah, I'm not a fan of Germany as a, as a space, as a country for memorials and monuments, um, recognizing the atrocities of the Holocaust. I don't, I don't think they are. I also think the Stolpersteine that emerged, um, you know, Stolpersteine, the stumbling stones that came about, um, in the late night, the late 90s, I think 1997, it was not a state-driven initiative. It was actually driven by, you know, a guy, um, Denning, who thought, hey, I need to recognize individuals in there. You know, we've lost them and let's acknowledge them. I mean, now the state is involved, but for a while it didn't, you know, it didn't come out as like a state. It wasn't a state impetus to recognize or to memorialize these lost victims. And so, yeah, Germany fails to be a model for me on a variety of levels. It still hasn't fully grappled with its anti-Semitism. We, I think there's a myth of, okay, you know, the, the Third Reich was defeated. Anti-Semitism is gone. Racism is gone. We're all good. And we've thrown it all in the garbage. And the reality is nine, all of that still remained um, entrenched in cultural practices and vocabulary in um, symbols, in in practices, so I think Germany doesn't remain a model for me. It won't. Rem- it won't be a model 
um, for some time to come. I also don't see Germany as a model because it hasn't grappled with its first um, genocide, which took place, you know, from 1904 to 1908 in Namibia, German Southwest Africa. So the 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 hin and hea, the back and forth about should we apologize, should we not apologize? Oh, let's give them reparations, but it's not what they want. And to be, you know, outraged that Namibians would reject the offer that Germans provide for them, also doesn't acknowledge that there are different forms of reparation, that it's not only about monetary reparation, it's also about repatriating bones and bodies back to family members who can offer them proper burial rights and proper burial traditions. Um, it's about community um, in, um, investment. It's about a variety of things. So I think this is where Germans are very much tied to Western notions and Western cosmologies that don't take into account um, non-Western approaches to, to death, to living, to what um, reparative justice can truly look like. So until Germany really does a, does a better job of even acknowledging that, because I think very few people recognize that Germany committed uh, a strategic genocide in Namibia, getting rid of, you know, a large population of the Herero and non, uh, Nama as well as San peoples, indigenous peoples to the region, I think it's it, it's not really a model. Um, and I think these types of histories aren't well known. Yeah, so all of these things are in motion. And I hope that, you know, as a resident of Germany, though not yet a citizen somehow, um, I can live in a country that can be a, a model for... Atonement. And the last time you and I were in motion while we were walking through the forest uh, when we first met, I think I recall you telling me that you had been teaching a class um, having something to do with Black Lives Matter in a global context. Before I ask you about it, am I making that up or is that true-ish? You are. That's true. That's absolutely true. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I, I wonder about that class. I th ever since you told me about it, I've been thinking about like, if I were to write a syllabus for that class, like where would I start and what would it look like? And of course I, I shouldn't teach that class, but I'm just really interested in what one could do with that. I just think it's great that you're doing it first and foremost, like kudos and props and all of that. But I guess I wonder more specifically how your teaching has evolved since the murder of George Floyd. Ooh. Yeah, I think, all right, my teaching has evolved in a variety of ways since the murder of George Floyd. Um, the murder of George Floyd for me was pretty um, horrible on a variety of levels. Um, it was not only horrible because another, I saw another black life was, you know, snuffed out. Um, it was also during the pandemic in which my little one was home and not at school. And then I was teaching classes online and like losing my mind slowly. <laughs> um, so I was, it was a, it was a very existential moment for me um, in which I thought, my goodness, I cannot believe this is the world my son is going to grow up in. Um, and I felt horrible and I felt not only horrible, but I also felt like terribly depressed, uh, about it and was like racked with, um, lots of depression and lots of sadness, uh, through the course of my depression and sadness, uh, 
I also was trying to finish my book and do the copy edits and all that jazz. Um, so I was like very stressed, sad, and depressed. So it's made, it's basically George Floyd's death made me realize that my own mental health matters. Hmm. And I really need to focus on that consistently and that my students' mental health matters. And so it's after George Floyd that I started a self-help, a self-care folder for my classes in which I offer a number of ways, um, free, free meditation apps, resources on campus, all of an effort to try to help them um, and let them know that their, their mental health matters too and they need to take care of it. Uh, in addition to that, I also incorporated some more lenient policies in my syllabi. So for example, prior to George Floyd, I had this stuff happens clause that they could use for half the assignments. So if I had like five assignments, they could use the stuff happens clause for two of the five assignments, which meant that they um, could email me and say, I need to evoke the clause. They don't have to give me a reason. And then they would get three day, three extra days in extension. Um, on a paper or whatever the assignment was. I love that. My friend referred to it as a shit happens clause, but I was going up for tenure and I couldn't have like shit. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I read between the lines on that. It is certainly a shit happens clause, yeah, but you yeah. know. And so I stole it from her. And so I used it basically that fall of 2019 and spring of 2019. But then by fall of 2020, Still in the pandemic, after George Floyd, I decided to allow students to use the Stuff Happens class for all assignments. Um, and and they were like, but I thought I could only use it for one. And I was like, this is where reading the syllabus matters. You can use it for all of the assignments. You just have to, you know, you just have to check in with me. You have to, you don't need to tell me what life issues are emerging. And doing that has been really good in terms of that. And then another pedagogical tool that I use is like the unessay option, um, which I initially only used it in one class in that fall of 2019. And then in all the other classes I've taught, I use it all the time. And it gives students an opportunity and graduate students and undergraduate students to not only write like a formal essay if they want, if they're so inclined, but it also allows them to produce something else like a podcast, uh, to create a, a website, to draw, to, to write a song, to do, you know, a variety of things that would allow them to still um, engage with some of the source material and the themes of the course. So those are, I think those are certainly responses to George Floyd and trying to integrate more flexibility in the syllabus. Um, and then also being very honest in my classes about my own mental health um, with my students. You know, so I've been, I told my students, Dr. Florval has anxiety. She also has to suffer from depression. Stuff gets hard and you want to hide. You can't hide. You need to communicate. Um, it's hard for Dr. Florval to communicate too, especially when you get into those stages. And But it's important. So being honest and open with my students about my own struggles, I think, helps. So that's definitely, I was doing it during. So that spring of 2020, I was doing it. And then more um more explicitly in in subsequent semesters that i've taught oh dr florville you are so teeming with empathy i love it i love it and that should be enough but i got a couple more questions for you you ready to roll i'm ready all right so i'm curious about this as your time in berlin begins to wind down 
how has your thinking about the Black German experience evolved during your time in Berlin? Ooh, yeah. I think I feel like I'm my ideas about the Black German movement, my ideas about Black German activism, Black German intellectual intellectualism, internationalism, whatever the topic is have changed considerably so um and i i think that's a good thing um i think i want to constantly be evolving and constantly learning as i said previously but they've really changed um especially as i'm working on this biography on my aim in which i'm just learning all of this new information about her that i previously didn't know about even though i've studied her for like 10 plus years and I'm just like, wow, how did I not know about this? Um, reading letters in the archive. So her her Nachlass, her collection is located at the FU. Finding her materials um, while I was doing dissertation, she's the story I referred to about boxes in a basement. There were like 20 plus boxes of my Eames materials in a Berlin basement that I helped move from one Berlin basement to the next Berlin basement. Okay. And then I was able to look at those materials at, um, at a friend's house, at her kitchen table. Um, and now they're at the FU, but there are so many things I couldn't go through. Um, and so going through, going through some letters, um, looking at old material that I've gone through before and sort of getting new insights, getting new ideas about how I can approach the topic. All of it's been really, really fruitful, conducting interviews, chatting with her, who I like to refer to as her executor, um, trying to forge connections and meet with other individuals that knew my aim. All of this has been really fruitful and has been giving me more and more insights. It's also very sad because um, some of the material that I'm learning about from my is also sensitive and sad. And I have to really grapple with the ethical, um, the ramifications of sharing some of that material. Um, hmm. um, but I do want to use the biography as a way of talking about her her complexity and her her interiority so i have to address her mental health but i think um it's been really a, a useful process here being here to sort of learn that like wow i still have even though i've been studying this group and studying my aim and studying these and some of these individuals for so long i still don't know as much um and that's good i think yeah. um, i think it's good for me because I don't want to know it all. I want to constantly learn and grow. Yeah. But it's also like lots more work to be done. So I need more fellowships to like come back to Germany. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I should ask, what is next for you after Berlin? Oh, yeah. I go back to Albuquerque for a little and then I have a fellowship at Harvard next year. Kids going to Harvard. Go you. Is that for the entire academic year? Yeah, I'll be there from September to May. How does it feel knowing that they're probably just going to try to hire you after that? I don't think they'll hire me. I'm not, I am not Ivy material. I think it'll be a great experience. I get to introduce my aim to a new group of people. And I think I'm really, really excited because I potentially will get research assistance. Ooh. So that will be really, really helpful for me in terms of having them read German sources. Awesome. I'm really excited for you. And I just have one more thing before we go. I was hoping that in closing, you could recommend to our listeners something that illustrates or otherwise influences your work. It could be anything, a book, a song, a film, some zine that you found in a basement in Berlin, anything, no rules. Just uh, give us a little something to chew on before you depart. 
Yeah. One of my favorite books that I still um, find new things in that I've written about in my work is a Black German anthology that came out in 1986. It's called File Bekennen, showing, um, and it was published in English in 92. And the English translation was Showing Our Colors from the University of Massachusetts Press. Um, and so that, um, that volume is pretty amazing. It's inspiring black German feminists, multiple generations in there, not just there's poetry, there are interviews, there's historical, sociological texts. There's just a juxtaposition of so many genres and I learn new stuff in it every time I read it. And so I think it was one of the first books I read about black Germans when I returned to the U S after my exchange year in which I was like, how did I not know about them when I lived in Germany? <laughs> so it's, it's like, what? Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's still a fave. And then one of my favorite, I mean, I'm pretty cheesy. So I still <laughs> like one of my favorite groups for a while was Wizen Helden. So I still like to listen to them from time to time and like jam out um, in the in, in my car. Um, not my car here because I don't have a car in Berlin, but yeah, in my car yeah, yeah. in the U.S. Right. And I'm jamming out and hanging out with them. So follow Buchanan and then listen into Visit Head. Love it. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to listen to you, to learn from you, to be in conversation with you. If I started this podcast as a Tiffany Floraville fanboy, we're wrapping up with me as someone who wants to compete for the presidency of the Tiffany Floraville fan club. <laughs> There's probably gaggles of students who also want to be the president of your fan club, but I will fight tooth and nail for that presidency. <laughs> Dr. Tiffany Florville, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been such a joy. Thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun. All right there, kids. That was me doing my best to, <laughs> to keep up with Dr. Tiffany Florville. Woman is an intellectual tour de force. She's also kind, compassionate, clever, world-class person. Like I said, I'm a fanboy. So follow the show wherever you get podcasts, maybe leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if For a Living means something to you and you got the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash for a living. We are in the thickest summer here in Berlin. The wife and daughter are flying to the States for a couple weeks, leaving me alone here in Berlin. I'm going to miss them. It's true. At the same time, I got a lot to do. Super excited about my couple weeks of utter and complete selfishness. Presumably, if my liver survives, I will have a lot of podcasts, a lot of newsletters, a lot of music written. It's going to be a trip, y'all. I'm excited. So that's for me. For you, please take care. Be well. I'll be back with you in two weeks' time. Big hugs, kids. Big hugs. Bye.